Let's pray. Father, how amazingly blessed we are as a people. You have carried us through this last week of freezing temperatures. We all have warm houses. We all have running water. We all have warm running water now. Father, you have you have kept us, you have provided for us. But more importantly, Lord, and, and above all of this, Lord, you have revealed yourself to us. What an amazing you God you are in choosing us to be your children. How merciful you are in condescending to speak to us. Desiring us to know who you are. Desiring us to know the truth and reality of who you are. That we would praise you and praise your name. Father, we know that you're in our midst now. Lord, I ask that you would teach us, that you would convict us, that you would admonish us, that you would teach us, that we would become more like your son. Thank you for loving us, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Verse 21. After Jesus had said this, he became, he became troubled in spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me. Our verses today begin with Jesus proclaiming a truth that caused him great concern. Unfortunately, we read verses like this and we'll pass right on by them because we, don't want, we want to get to the real meat of the text, the interesting parts. We want to get to the part where he's condemning and calling out Peter. We want to get to the parts that will mean something to us. And we do this to our detriment. We do this and miss truly knowing our Lord miss really understanding the life of our Savior. And we do this. And because we do this, we miss truly knowing our Lord, really understanding the life of our Savior. And because of that, we have no idea what our life is supposed to be like, what we should be like, what our life with Christ really is. So, what was it that Jesus had just said that led up to verse 21 that caused him to be troubled in his spirit? That it began being revealed to us in chapter 2, or verse 2 of this chapter. The commentary part by John, which says, The evening meal was underway, and the devil had already put into the heart of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. That it is spoken of in verse 10. Jesus told him, 
Whoever has already bathed needs only to wash his feet, and he will be completely clean. And you are clean, though not all of you. And then the commentary by John in verse 11. For he knew who would betray him. That's why he said, not all of you are clean. That it was summed up in verse 18 through 20. I'm not speaking about all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But this is to fulfill the scripture. The one who shares my bread has lifted up his heel against me. The scripture that Jesus was talking about there, the one that this statement is the fulfillment of, is found in verse um, Psalm 41, a psalm that is a psalm of David, that he penned as a plea to God to save and protect him from a bitter enemy. A bitter enemy that has been supposed by theologians to have been his very own son, Absalom. Here verses 5 through 9 of that psalm. David said, My enemies say of me in malice, When will he die and his name perish? And when one comes to see me, he utters empty words while in his heart gathers iniquity. And then he goes out and he tells it abroad. All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. They say a deadly thing is poured out on him. He won't rise again from where he lies. And even my close friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, he has lifted his heel against me. Saints, how is it that we are so cold-hearted about our Lord that when we read or think about Judas and his treachery, that we aren't heartbroken. How is it that we don't hear, sense, understand that the betrayal of Jesus was personal? One reason is that we've stripped Jesus of his humanity. We never consider that while he was completely God, he was still completely human. And yes, he knew that Judas was not of him, that Judas would become a traitor. But in his humanity, he still loved that traitor. He told that treacherous man the same truths about who he was that he told those that were of him. He revealed himself to this man, opened his heart to this man, and loved this man as a brother. In fact, we know through the Gospels that while John was reclining at the, on the right of Jesus at this meal, it was Judas who was reclining on the left of him. So, to understand this, you're going to have to get rid of that picture of the Last Supper by Leonardo da Vinci, because he got it all wrong. First, they weren't sitting at a long table with Jesus sitting in the middle of it. In that day, the custom for these types of meals would have had them reclining around a U-shaped table that was open for the servants to come and put food on the table. And those in attendance would recline on their left arm with their feet facing away from the table. And even in that painting by da Vinci, the seating was completely wrong. Because the host of the feast would recline 
in the second position on the left of these tables. On his right would be his right-hand man. That's where John was reclining. And in the third position, John, Jesus, who is the host, the third position, the one opposite of Jesus, would be, would be where the guest of honor would be seated. And that's where Judas reclined. And we know this because Jesus handed the bread to Judas. And then the seating continued all around the table to the least important person reclining directly across from John. And that's where Jesus sat Peter, the one that so many place so much importance on. Jesus purposefully seated these men in this order. And Judas wasn't sitting on the place of honor because Jesus was wanting to mock him or because he was going to make an example of him. Because if either, were these, uh, if either of these things were the case, then Jesus would be sinful. And we know that he wasn't. Jesus loved this man, which is why he became troubled in his spirit, and then proclaimed, Thus saith the Lord, one of you is going to betray me. It's as if he elevated this man to give him no reason to betray him. He gave him an elevated office in handling the money bag. And he gave him an elevated seat at that last supper. And this sort of thinking is kind of scandalous to us. It may not fit so nicely into the little box that you've made for God. But this is all truth. But this doesn't mean that Judas was the exception to the rule that those that are not of Christ can come to him, or that all that are of him will not come to him. Because we're told in verse 1 of this chapter, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And the love that is spoken of in verse 1 is not the same kind of love the same type of love that Jesus had for Judas. The love that is spoken of in verse 1 is an eternal, heavenly, amazing love that was manifested in Christ stepping down out of the heavenly, stepping down into creation, living a perfect life of obedience to his Father, and then willingly choosing to give that life for those that he loved. That love is completely different than the love that he had for Judas. But the love that he had for Judas was a fully human love. The same kind of love that you feel for the closest of your friends. The same kind of love for you that you feel for your children, for your parents, for your spouse. And that, pure, or that love was pure, meaning that it wasn't tainted with sin as our love is. Because we love sinfully. There's always an aspect of us in our love. This wasn't true for Jesus. He loved with reckless abandon. And he willingly opened himself up to love this man. All the while knowing that that man was not of him. That he was not chosen. Knowing that this man would readily accept the love and friendship of Christ. 
and then would use that love, that closeness, that access to betray him. The reason that we are so cold concerning the heartbreak of Christ due to the treachery of Judas is because when we think about the Lord and then ourselves, we don't see our own sin as equal and of the same sort of the treachery that Judas did. Did you hear what I just said? Was that over the top? Maybe out of bounds? Am I completely off the reservation to say such a thing like that? Because you're sitting there thinking to yourself, I'm not Judas. I would never betray Jesus Christ. I would never sell him for money. David, you're way off base on this. And I have to readily admit, you're right. You're correct. Our sin is not as bad as that of Judas. I was just saying that to get your attention. How much worse is our treachery against the Lord than that of Judas? Judas was not of the elect. He was not one of those that Jesus loved and loved to the end. And his treachery broke the heart of Christ. What do you think your treachery does? What do you think your willful sin of disobedience does to our Lord? Oh, no, my sin of selfishness can't break the heart of Jesus. He died for that sin. He cleanses me of all sin. What a horrible monster of iniquity you are. How quick you are to praise God for washing you whiter than snow. How quick you are to claim the status of being in Christ. And how quick you are to then kick the one that you say is the lover of your soul. How quick you are to rush right back to the slop of selfish, prideful sin and willingly, knowingly, pick up that stake, take up that hammer, and place it squarely on the wrist of Jesus Christ and drive that nail home. Just as long as you get to hang on to your selfish pride, Oh, we love to tisk-tisk at Judas. How could anyone ever betray Jesus? We get mad at him and talk trash about him. We're amazed at the cold callousness of him. We think that his selfishness in calling out Mary for anointing Christ was awful. We think that him stealing from the money bag entrusted him by Jesus is vile. But do we? who this I am king loved and loved to the end, do we not do the same things? Are there any here not handling the money bag that the Lord has entrusted you with in the same manner? Because Malachi 3.8 tells us, Will you, man, rob God? Yet you are robbing me, says God. But you say, How have we robbed you? In your, in your ties and contributions. And your response as you sit there is, that's an Old Testament verse. It doesn't apply to me. We're no longer under the law. And I would rebut, 
that the temple laws made no longer apply, but the premise behind them still does. Because those laws were never about the tithe. They were always about your heart and what you think of the Lord. Almost half of the parables that Jesus told concerned money. There's over 2,000 verses in the Bible concerning money. And you think, me bringing it up, me telling you the truth about money and its grip on you and your heart, on your life, is an invasion, an offense. You cannot love two masters. Your giving is a reflection of your love of Christ. End of story. It is a statement on where you place your hope, your priorities. It proclaims loudly who your God is and what you're trusting in. What we give should be in proportion to that which he gave. And still, you don't. This is no different than Judas stealing from the money bag that was entrusted to him. And are there any here who would scoff at your brother or sister, the one who, out of adoration for the Lord, denies their flesh, spends time away from entertainment, gives of themselves to memorizing scripture and serving the body? And you sit there and you think, well, that's good for them. doesn't apply to me. They're probably just doing that because they want to be seen. This is the same as Judas mocking Mary for her desire to give back to the Lord, her desire to know the Lord. And which of you are unwilling to give up your sinful rights because it is simply because it is what your flesh desires to do? I want that. Read 1 John. Hear the truth concerning salvation and those that are his. Can you not see? Don't you see? This, our willful sin, is far worse than anything and everything that Judas would ever do to the Lord. He loves you to the end. He died for you. He didn't die for Judas. How is it that this matters so little to us? It matters so little because we are products of the American evangelical so-called church. And we don't consider the life of Christ, the love of Christ, and the price of our salvation. We do not reason together with God. We gladly just accept the gift of God and think that it really has no bearing on our life. We have been never admonished to truly know our God and to really, truly ask God to look at our lives and see if there be any wicked thing in us. We do not esteem his church as we should. We are content to play at church because that's the normal Christian thing to do. We must repent. 
Saints, consider your Savior. Be amazed at the love that he loves you with. And let us think about what it is to be one of his. Life with Christ, the love of Christ, was so overwhelming to these men that they were shocked by that statement that Christ made when he told them that one of them would betray them. Hear the effects of that one statement by Christ on these men. Verse 22, the disciples looked at one another, perplexed to what he, what, which one of them he meant. We're told in the Gospels of Matthew and Mark that this statement by Christ caused them to be more than just a little perplexed. In Mark 14, verse 19, it says, They began to be sorrowful and say to him one after another, Is it I? And then in Matthew 26, verse 22, And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? The question I have to ask you, as you sit here, is what would your reaction be on hearing this? Are you self-aware enough to know, just like every one of these men, that it could be you outside of Christ? Because these men walked side by side with Jesus. They slept alongside of him, ate with him, were disciples of his. And all of them had the same reaction. Is it me? Are you so confident within yourself that you don't think that this is possible? These men were not. Even though they were shocked and perplexed by the statement made by Jesus, telling them that one of their own would betray him, the Messiah, the one that they loved, the one that loved them, none of them thought so highly of themselves to not wonder, to truly wonder, could it be me? Do you not care about this? Because if you're living a double agent kind of life, playing at being Christian, deciding which commands of Christ you will comply with and which ones just don't apply, you need to be warned Because you may have been deluded into believing that the promises of the Lord are yours. All the while, you willingly, stubbornly, selfishly disobey the one that you claimed saved you. Do you think, do you actually think that you can compartmentalize your life like that? That you're getting away with anything? You may be fooling these people sitting around here, but do you really believe that you're fooling the Lord? That you can come here and praise God and then go home and watch porn. That you can claim the name of Christ and then worship money by not giving. That you can say that you seek the glory of God and then with Everything that you do, everything that you buy and you adorn yourself with, you prove that you are seeking the glory of man rather than God. Don't look around and think that you're safe because everyone else is doing it. 
It's okay for me to watch that show. Everybody else does. Don't think that just because this is how all the rest of those within that thing that is called the church live, think, act, that you or them are safe. Because earlier in the life of these men, Jesus admonished them and us concerning life with him. In Matthew 7, he told them, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the, the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Does this wide gate not describe so many in evangelicalism? The narrow gate, the hard road, how many are even willing to look at that? How many within evangelicalism will actually consider become a mission, becoming a missionary? Consider telling their children, admonishing their children, forsake this world, give yourself to Christ. Leave America. Die if you have to in proclaiming the gospel. How many will live below their means in order to be a blessing to others? How many are willing to swim against the stream and not look like, buy like, and watch like the rest of the world? The wide gate is the American church gate. And even those within positions of authority within it, they choose the wide and easy gate. And because of their hypocrisy and lifestyle, so many are content to live in their hypocrisy and lifestyle. But Jesus addressed them next in Matthew 7. He said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruit. Well, what fruit is Jesus talking about? Because we think that fruit is something like peace, a great singing voice, an amazing ministry to millions of people built upon many years of service in situational apologetics. We think that it's knowing, memorizing scripture, serving in the kids' wing. We think that it's evidenced by any of these things, and we are wrong. What fruit was Jesus talking about here? Well, he tells us what it is in the verses that followed in Matthew 7. He says, Thus you will recognize them by their fruits, because not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawless or you workers of lawlessness. These that Jesus tells to go to hell did mighty so-called works for the Lord. They had great ministries that everyone loved to watch, everyone loved to be part of, everyone loved to talk about and wanted to mimic. 
They had these great ministries that so many people that are of the world were very happy and content to be part of. But they lacked the one fruit of salvation that mattered. And he tells them and us what that fruit is in verse 21. Doing the will of the Father in heaven. And then beginning in verse 24 of Matthew 7, he then begins to describe what those that produce the fruit of salvation, that do the will of the Father, what they can be described as. He says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them, they will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Saints, you may have heard this before, but I just want to reiterate this once again, in case you didn't realize it. Both the wise and the unwise faced a flood. The same flood. The same flood hit both of their houses. But one was wise and obeyed, and his house stood. And the other was unwise and didn't obey, and his house fell. Saints, before we move on, let me admonish you once more. Be reconciled to Christ. Do the work of a Christian. Cry out to God like David did when he said, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me, know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me to the way of salvation, uh, to everlasting. We have to stop playing at Christianity. Stop justifying why you live like the world, why you dress like the world, and think like the world. We have to be different. Because we are different. We need to stop being so hypocritical. Saints, I am not trying to lay a burden on you that is grievous, that is beyond the word of God, because I love you. I care for you. I care about the state of your soul. So let us, me included, be honest with ourselves, with our life, because we can't compartmentalize Christ and be of him. We can't look like, smell like, act like the world, and assume that we're safe. Every one of those men in that room all understood this truth. That's why they were troubled within themselves. Troubled enough to ask Jesus if it were him. And he must not have answered them. Because we're told 
in verses 23 through 25, one of his disciples, the one who Jesus loved, was reclining at his side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus which one he was talking about. And leaning back against Jesus, he asked, Lord, who is it? The Matthew and Mark Gospels tell us that all disciples all asked Jesus if it were him. Does that include Judas? We don't know, but it probably did. And from what we can glean from Scripture, Jesus didn't answer any of them, which prompted Peter to get John to, direct, to uh, directly ask Jesus, not if it were him, but who was it? So John does something that only a beloved child can do. He leans back on the bosom of his beloved Savior and asks him, who is it? You parents, you parents may have had one of, the, one of these children. I did. Tracy will tell you that she had me wrapped around her little finger. She melted my heart. This must have been the relationship that John had with Jesus. And if you ever had that child, the one that melted your heart, the one that had you wrapped around their little finger, ask yourself this. What was it that made that relationship so special? For me, it was the love that was found in her eyes every time I looked at her. It was like she was peering into my soul. I could sense her total love and dependence on me. And this is the heart that I desire to have for my Lord. The heart that John had. And Jesus responded to that request. In verse 26, he answered, it's the one to whom I gave this morsel after I've dipped it. Then he dipped the morsel and gave it to Judas, son of Simon Iscariot. I've entitled this sermon, Master and Commander, based on a truth that we are given in verses 27 through 30. There we read, and when Judas had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Then Jesus said to Judas, what you were about to do, do quickly. But no one at the table knew why Jesus had said this to him. Since Judas had kept the money bag, some thought that Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the feast or to give something to the poor. And as soon as he received the morsel, Judas went out into the night. Now much ado has been made about Satan and the demonic forces of this world, and way too much credit has been given to him and too much power. Far too many Christians have believed that he and Christ are on equal footing, that if they were boxers, that they would be in the same weight class, that they, if they were a football team, that they would be in the same league. And this is simply and absolutely not the case. Because if they were boxers, Jesus would not just be the heavyweight champion of the world and Satan a lightweight. He wouldn't even be an amateur. He would be the sweat that fell off the face of Jesus as he was warming up. And if they were a football team, Jesus would not just be the Super Bowl champion and Satan merely the last place team in that league. 
He wouldn't even be a JV football team. He would be the mud that fell off the cleat of Jesus as he walked from the field. And verse 27 is the only time in all the Gospel of John that Satan is even mentioned by name. And yes, he is called the ruler of the world, the king of the age, a roaring lion that sets about to destroy. And he is those things. But we have to remember where he got that control from, who it was that gave control of this age, this world, to Satan. Because Satan did not wrestle control of this world from the hands of God. When he was cast out of heaven with a third of his angelic beings, when they were cast out, he had no home, no kingdom, no power. He didn't wage a coup against God and take this world from his control. There is no celebrity death match going on in heaven. And you may find this surprising, but Satan was thought so little about by God that the best and most informative verses that we have concerning him is given to us at the end of the Bible. Not at the beginning, not even in the middle. You have to go all the way to Revelation to really get a good glimpse into the epic failure that was and is Satan. We read in Revelation 12, 9, And that great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Do you desire to just to get a glimpse of that, what the relationship between God and Satan is? Well, we're given one at the beginning of the book of Job. Chapter 1, beginning in verse 6. One day the sons of God came to present themselves before Yahweh, and Satan also came with them. That's pretty crazy, isn't it? Why in the world would Satan, what in the world would he be doing in the same place as God, with his angels no less? Do you know what kind of enemy you allow walking around in your presence? Allow access to those that are created by you? The one that can't do you or them any harm at all. And then God once again proves that he and Satan are not equal, beginning in verse 7. He says, where have you come from? From roaming the earth, Satan replied, and walking back and forth on it. Then Yahweh said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one on earth like him, a man who is blameless and upright, who fears God and shuns evil. That verse right there is theologically rich with truth. If you want to know who you are in Christ and what you should expect as a Christian, grab hold of verse 8 of, of Job 1 and hang on to that. Because that verse tells us truth concerning God and those that are his, and even how he uses Satan for his purpose. Because God has for all eternity been concerned about one thing, and you are not it. He is concerned about his glory. Those that are his are created and exist for his glory. And those that are not his, 
Even they exist for his glory. But Satan answered Yahweh, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not placed a hedge on every side around him and his household and all that he owns? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But you stretch out your hand and strike all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. I want us to hear what Satan said concerning this man, that man that God just said was blameless, upright, who feared him and shunned evil. Satan said that it was the physical blessings of God, the stuff that he had. That is why he feared God. That it was his best life now. That was the driving force behind that relationship that Job had with God. Should that not cause us just a little bit of concern if the things of this world hold so much sway over us? Very well, said Yahweh to Satan. Everything he has is in your hands, but you must not lay a hand on the man himself. Then Satan went out of the presence of Yahweh. And that's all we're told of this encounter. But did you notice that Satan was not only stopped by God, but then he answered God? And he could only touch one of his children, a child that was specifically pointed out to him by God, that he could only touch him by the command of God. And then he was told exactly what he could do and could not do with that man. Unless we get confused concerning the power of Satan, the Bible makes reference to him in a number of verses in a number of ways. He's called the prince of the power of the air in Ephesians 2.2. He's referred to as the ruler of this world in John 12.31. But when the Bible says that Satan has power over the world, we must remember the reality of who God is. Because God is the creator not only of this world, but of the universe that encompasses this world. And there is not one thing, there is not one strand, stray molecule in all the universe that is rogue, that is not under the control of God. Everything in this universe Everything God lays claim to as mine. So why would God allow this fallen, evil one to remain in his universe? To be able to destroy, to kill, to influence people. I would submit to you that the reason for this can be summed up in three words. For his glory. Think about this. It was Satan who proved the love of Christ for the Father in the temptation in the wilderness. Satan offered an easy way out, lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, the pride of life. It is Satan who rules over pain and suffering, death and destruction. And this reality makes the miracles of Jesus shine that much more brightly. This is why understanding that while Jesus was fully God and that he was God from eternity past alongside of the Father and the Spirit, that he isn't created, 
And this is what makes the incarnation so amazing. Because even though he was fully God, he became fully human. We have a hard time understanding that. But how is that truth any harder than understanding that God is one? The Father, the Son, the Spirit, each separate but equal. Not a third God and a third God and a third God, but each one being fully God, none being less than fully God. But when we grasp the reality that the eternal Son, who is God, stepped out of eternity and was begotten, not made, not created by the Holy Spirit in the womb of Mary, we can begin to wonder all the more at the love of God for those that he loved and loved to the end. Because the two natures of Christ did not mix. They didn't influence each other. Jesus was and always will be God. But Jesus was not always human. But he will always, for the rest of eternity, now remain in humanity. Just as our propitiation, our love gift, that is how he remains. Just as we, his love gift, remain. But it's when we grasp the humanity of Christ, when we understand the humanity of Christ, and then we can then see why the miracles that he performed are so amazing. Because in each one of them, he revealed his dominion over the one who is said to be prince of this world. And doing these miracles was no taxing feat for him. He was never worn out by them. We're never told that after he fed the 5,000, he had to go take a nap because he was drained. He just decided to do them. And he did them. This understanding is also helpful in understanding the power that the prince of the air has. First of all, it is God that has given him dominion. And his dominion, and his dominion is over unbelievers only. Believers are no longer under the rule of Satan. Colossians 1.13 tells us. Unbelievers, on the other hand, are caught in the snares of the devil, 2 Timothy 2.26. They remain in the power of the devil, 1 John 5.19. They are in bondage to Satan, Ephesians 2.2. When we see Satan as a tool for the glory of God, we can then better understand how when a person is regenerated, has their heart made alive once again to the truth and reality of God, when they see their sin and their treason and confess it and their belief that Jesus is Lord, how the angels in heaven shout glory to God in the highest once again. Because in 2 Corinthians 2, 4, 4, we're told that, that, Satan, that the unbelievers follow Satan's agenda, which says the God of this world has blinded the minds, the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel the glory of Christ. Now this isn't to say that Satan separated man from God. We did that on our own. We blinded our minds. We killed our own hearts. But for those outside of Christ, they remain in that, in that state. And Satan makes sure that those blinders that they put on, that those blinders remain on super tight. 
The separation that occurred when Adam sinned, when we killed ourselves, wasn't a big enough hurdle. It wasn't a large enough gulf between us and God to provide God with the glory that he deserves in saving his soul. So he allowed Satan, that snake, dominion over those damned souls just to make salvation. Belief in God, that much more of an impossible task. And this is why one of Satan's greatest schemes is promoting false philosophies, which are also called false religions, that blind the unbelievers all the more to the truth of the gospel. False gospels that make people feel religious. Because his philosophies, his religions, those are the fortresses in which people are imprisoned. And they can only be set free by Christ. And an example of that false philosophy within those false religions is the belief that man can earn God's favor by works. If you think about it, almost every false religion out there merits God's favor or earning. They merit eternal life through works. It's at the core of their religion. And this appeals to our sense of self, our thought that we can be God, that we can do it our way. But we're told that we can't earn salvation in Ephesians 2, which tells us, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is a gift from God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Jesus, to do good works, which God prepared in advance as our way of life. I want you to really think about that. And Satan, when Jesus walked the earth, did not know that Jesus was God. He thought of him only as the Son of God, come from God. He was completely wrong about the person of Jesus. He saw Jesus in the same way that he saw Adam. And the schemes that had worked on Adam were deployed on Jesus. Did God really say? But unlike Adam, Jesus, who though was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient, to the point of death, even death on a cross. Which is why after tempting or trying to tempt him and then failing, Satan then went on a campaign to stop this Jesus. And in doing so, he set himself on the collision course of his own doom when he decided to get rid of this man, God. Deciding that he, Satan, would then employ his most lethal of weapons, Death. I'm going to kill him. And our verses today echo this account from Job that we read. Because we can be confused about Judas. I'd venture to actually say that we are confused concerning him. We think that he acted the way he did because he was satanically possessed. We think that he was a thief and a coward because he was satanically possessed. 
But many people never stop to realize that the reality is, is that this was just Judas in his natural, unregenerate state. This is the way that he was. He was that man that would become the traitor. That man was not satanically possessed when he made the deal with the religious leaders to sell Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. We're told in Matthew 26 that it was after the dinner feast that happened with Mary, Martha, and and Lazarus that he had had enough of all that nonsense. After being called out by Jesus, in verses 14 through 16, it says, Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, What will you give me to deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment on, he sought an opportunity to betray him. He, at this point, was not possessed by Satan. He was just a normal human being doing normal human being things. A normal human being who was also self-deluded to believe that he was actually one of the sons of God. He was one that looked around at the other 11 people in that dinner and didn't think that he was any different than any of the rest of them. And at this point, Satan could not possess Judas either. Even though Judas was not one of those that were of Jesus, one that he loved to the end, he still just like everyone and everything else in the universe belonged to Jesus and was under his authority, just like Satan. John Calvin in his commentary had this to say about devil placing this into the heart of Judas. He said, when the evangelist says that Judas had been impelled by the devil to form the design of betraying Christ, this tends to show the enormity of the crime. For it was dreadful and most atrocious wickedness in which the efficacy of Satan was openly displayed. But though the lust of men is kindled into fiercer flame by Satan's fan, still it does not cease to be a furnace. It contains the flame kindled within itself and receives with avidity the agitation of of that fan so that no excuse is left for the wicked men. What? Well, what Calvin said in modern English is that Satan may have tempted Judas, but it was he did what was in his heart. And I'm confident that Judas had no idea that he was being played as the pawn in the most egregious crime of all history. And we are never told why Judas sold Christ for 30 pieces of silver. Maybe because he was angry at being called out by Jesus after the Mary incident. Maybe he was trying to force Jesus to act on his own behalf and take the kingdoms of the world back. Maybe he just wanted 30 pieces of silver. We're never told. But what we do know is that Jesus looked at, I'm sorry, Judas looked at Jesus. Think about this. Judas looked at Jesus, and he could weigh him against something in this created world. Thirty pieces of silver. 
The rest of our verses conclude this account. Verses 28 through 30. But no one at the table knew why Jesus said to him, said this to him. Since Jesus kept, Judas kept the money bag, some thought that Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the feast or to give something to the poor. And then verse 30, as soon as he had received the morsel, Judas went out into the night. Darkness in the Bible, especially in the Gospel of John, is always a reference or allusion to sin, to depravity, to the ruler of this world, which is why John concluded this episode with Judas going out into the night. And verse 5 from chapter 1 is a good illustration of this truth, which says the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And this is why Jesus is referred to as the light beginning in chapter 1. Why John uses the illustration of light to illuminate what and who it is that God so loved in um, chapter 3, verse 19. This is why Jesus refers to himself as light in John 8, 12, saying of those and those that are his, I am the light of the world, and he who walks in me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Why he refers to himself as life in John 9, 5. Why in John 12, after Jesus revealed to the masses that he would die and be lifted up, they asked him, who is this son of man? And this was his response. He said, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. And there is something very subtle in our verses that I want you to see, that God wants us to see in our verses from today. Satan could not enter into Judas until he was allowed to in verse 26. And Judas did not willingly leave the communion of the saints. He was directed to. He was told to. He was commanded by Christ to leave in verse 27. Judas thought that he was betraying Jesus behind his back. Satan thought that he had found a willing accomplice in his evil scheme to finally overcome God in the killing of his son. But what neither of them knew was that they were both doing exactly that which God desired them to do in order to bring the greatest amount of glory to his name. A fact that was attested to by Peter in Acts 4, when after de being detained and questioned and warned about preaching Christ, Christ, preach, preaching Christ, he praised God by saying, Why did the gentles rage and the people plot invade? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you appointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. This was all the will of God. And this is why knowing what our only hope in life and death is remains as utter importance. Because since we belong, body and soul, both in this life and in death, to God and the Lord Jesus Christ, 
we are to know that we have nothing to fear because Jesus is the master and commander of our eternity. And he's a good master, a masterful commander. He has made a way for us to be reconciled. This was utterly impossible outside of him. He has illuminated a path all the way home for those that walk in the light. And he was never a victim. He was never out of control. Even when he was being betrayed, even though he was hurt deeply by, be, by the betrayal of that man Judas, in all of this, through all of this, there was one single thing that drove Jesus, and that was the love of his Father. This is what made Jesus the last Adam. This is what made him the perfect, sinless, spotless Lamb of God, who is our propitiation, who is the master and commander. And even to the end, even to his end, he was leading and commanding. Hear how this master and commander led, how he ruled, how much he loved us and his. In John chapter 14, he says this, These things I've spoken to you while I'm still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace, I leave with you. My peace, I give you. Not as the world gives, do I give. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I'm going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I've told you. I've told you this before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. But he has no claim on me, but I do as the Father commands me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. John 14, verses 25 through 31. Church, rise, let us go from here in the power of the Holy Spirit, fully confident that the one that is in us is greater than the one that is in the world. And let us emulate our master and commander in walking in obedient love to the Father. Because he's given us peace. He's given us hope. And he's given both of these things to us in and through giving us himself. Let's pray.